Welcome to the Dolores Project, the only podcast endorsed by Sophia the Robot. I'm your host, Joshua Smith, and my goal with this project is to bring together some of the brightest minds on a controversial subject that will help everyone, yes, even grandma, understand what's at stake when it comes to our future with AI and robots. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Dolores Project. I have another special guest with me today, all the way from Berlin, Hendrik Kempt, who is a PhD student studying robotics at RWTH Aachen in Berlin. Hendrik, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah. So, Hendrik, before we get into a uh, discussion about robotics and all this stuff, uh, tell me a little bit about you personally, um, who you are, what makes you you. Oh, yeah, um, so I am uh, 31. I studied philosophy first in Düsseldorf and then at Humboldt University in Berlin, which is the reason why I live here. And I did my PhD also in philosophy mostly, which is uh, was on uh, some metaethics, so the philosophy of language and how we deal with um, more language. Is it true or not? Should it be true or not? Or should it be considered true or possibly true or not? Um, and during my PhD, I realized that there is a precious small market for that kind of topic and um, figured mm. that there is a lot of work to do elsewhere in philosophy and especially at the cross sections of philosophy, robotics, AI and such and um, started uh, putting my interest and my focus and my attention on uh, areas of that uh, concern. And that's how I ended up in working at a rather technical-oriented university in the very much applied ethics department. So for every applied ethics department in Germany, Aachen is probably the most applied because we mainly work with engineers and um, computer scientists. So that's a a very nice change of pace from from the rather intense debates of very particular small issues in in like the philosophy of language to more big picture yet more real applied pictures of of engineering ethics and the future of, of technology development yeah um what else would be interesting about me i guess there's not to say out of out of academia um i am very much interested in vintage cameras but Hmm. Um, maybe as a almost as a, a counterpoint to to doing AI all day, the the very mechanical clicking of a shutter is, is still the, <laughs> the joy of me to like go outdoors and just have have full control over what I'm doing with a little technical gadget, rather than have the technical gadget do things for me. Yeah, I like that. Um, so so, what do you like to photograph? Um, well, I, as as I'm living in Berlin, it's. It's hard to pick sometimes, but in the end, street photography is 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 my my forte because it's people get very very anxious about digital cameras and people taking digital pictures of them. And if I'm running around with with a medium format camera from the 70s, that just makes a shut shut noise when I take a picture. They don't really mind because they know they will not show up on any social media side for this because uh, I need to develop it first and then. If anything's in the end, scan it and then upload it. But that's usually not what I do. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's much more easier to it's much easier to approach people with it. So street photography becomes much 
much more possible in a country such as Germany, which is usually very concerned about data security and privacy. So just like yeah. snapping pictures is not an option. Well, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that as far as, you know, you know, we're all concerned about our privacy now and much more so and, and rightly so, you know, but yeah, the, the audible clicks of the shutter, you think that gives people a little bit of uh, peace to know that they're, they're not, their picture's not going to be sold or shared or leaked somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. If, if it even turns out good, because you don't know that either. You just have to trust the little mechanical things that you have here on your camera and like hope that you did it right. And um, hmm. most people are really not interested, I find at least, that if, if they see me hunched over with a, with an old little brick, they don't see a danger there. So I'm not taking their soul or their data. <laughs> yes. Hey, yeah, I understand. Um, when we lived in um, British Columbia, you know, so we are, you know, very much Anglo, and um, you know, we lived in a, a predominantly East Asian uh, city, and even our neighborhood was predominantly uh, Chinese, and so we would go to restaurants in our part of town, and people would ask to stop and take pictures of our little girl who was, you know, just this cute little white baby with big blue eyes. And I thought that was so strange. You know, we weren't celebrities or anything, but they would just want to take pictures of my daughter. And so I guess like, I, I guess, you know, sure. I don't want to be rude. Um, but yeah, I can, I can see that. And it was, it was on digital cameras, not on, uh, you know, analog stuff. So yeah. Yeah. You can still take it as a compliment, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. it was. I mean, I, I just, uh, I mean, now like she's older and, probably have more concerns about her privacy but um at that point she wasn't really conscious of um it was just like people want to take pictures of our little baby that's interesting okay <laughs> but uh but Hendrik tell us tell us a little bit of what, about why you got into um the robots rights questions and issues of rights with robots and um just kind of where you land on some of the stuff what's What's influenced you? Um, where do you want to take it? Mm -hmm. um, so the first interaction I had with the entire robot rights debate was as so many people have with the great David Gunkel, who not only his Twitter presence is a very helpful, just legit academic and non-academic orientation point to get the latest publications on the issue, have uh, theses discussed online in a very mm. poignant yet conclusive manner um, and like just being exposed to all of this um, was very helpful for thinking about uh, rights for non-human entities. I did come from a certain philosophical background and from a certain philosophical interest both which played into me developing a certain position in this field which was the philosophical background was something my PhD advisor coined in German as uh, pragma centrism, which is the idea that for discourse, moral or otherwise, we usually um, do not judge the entities on their status, their ontological status or something, but on their ability to act, which I think comes from, if you really look close at it, from from Heidegger or so it's like so it has like a very weird string back to 200 years ago where it was about um, not about defining 
entities on their mm -hmm. status in some ontological uh, theater, but rather about their role that they can play in this theater. And um, action or like like centering on pragmatics was was eye-opening for me to just think of human beings as the ones who happen to be able to act rather than those who were chosen to be able to act or who chose themselves to be the center of the universe or something. Mm -hmm. And um, that like that basically just gave me the the base perspective on both the robot rights debate but also on philosophy at large. And the other hand, where I came from also in in the book that I wrote and like on the publications that I've been working on so far is the idea that the linguistic turn in philosophy has been the basically the other other cornerstone for me philosophically, which is that um, the um, let me think for a second how I would phrase that without without getting me into hot water here, <laughs> um, <laughs> where um, where the fact that we use language to do most most cognitive things, if not all, is a cornerstone also for our communication and in the end also for our human-to-human -human interactions, relationships, and in the end also actions. So the fact that we are using language for almost anything, both for our cognition as well uh, as well as for our cooperation, coordination, co-orientation with others was the other big part to how I interpreted this emerging robot rights debate. And of course, in that case, um, computers or machines or AI or whatever you really want to call it specifically that is using natural language processing as a tool to start communicating with us, that is that was where I really attached to it because I, I, I thought that that's the genuine change of the robot rights debate in, in opposite to maybe the animal rights debate or the environmental rights debate or something like that, where we are able to create or produce, if you don't want to use the otherwise maybe philosophically charged term, uh, produce entities that are able to discuss and interact with us on a level that we do not get from others, from other entities that we are already willing to grant rights or to consider moral patience or consider morally, period. Um, and that was the that was the turning point for me where I thought there is something to be said in the robot rights debate as well, where it's getting too fast on robots mm. and too too far away from AI or from maybe from disembodied or non-embodied or maybe just very small embodied uh, entities such as a chatbot or a mm. personal assistant that is exhibiting most features that we care about when we talk about rights, but is not the the embodied version that usually is granted the rights so it's there's right. a disconnect that i found to be very interesting philosophically relevant and try to get to in my work or will get to for the hopefully for the next few years um to see especially in the robot rights debate where the differences between assigning rights or granting rights or thinking in terms of rights of something that is right in front of us as a thing that we can individuate that we perceive to be as our one interacting instance in opposite to a digital machine that is using words and sentences to communicate us on a probably much more intimate level even um, or equally in intimate as the most advanced robot 
can right now. So you can add a personal assistant in any kind of robot in the, as well. But the more interesting thing probably right now is the software, not the hardware. Um, and how does the rights debate even develop then when you do not have something to point at, but rather a file to point at that this that's the thing that I have built a relationship with or have interacted with in a way that touched me and I really want to, you know, add or extend or think in terms of rights about. And that's the the move where I find myself land in the debate as well, which is why I think technically I am not in the in the four way matrix, but on the sidelines where this Mm -hmm. uh, the aforementioned pragmacentrism comes in where I don't think mm -hmm. it's worth thinking about these machines as bearers of rights on their own, but it's not a useless debate. It's not, there's no definite answer in this four-way matrix, but it's also not a pointless debate as some claim to be. Sure, fine. But it's more of a, it tells us something about us and it mm -hmm. tells us something about each other. So that's the, I guess, uh, the upshot that helps. Yeah. No, that does help. Um, and and really, I haven't read as much uh, in my research about the the non-social uh, aspect of robot rights. And like you're talking about, um, so, you know, Siri and, um, you know, things that are depicted like in um, the, the movie Her, where there is an entity that, you know, a man falls in love with and, you know, does does that entity deserve rights? And yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I'd love, I'm anxious to see where you go with that in your research um, and can't wait to read it. Hopefully it'll be in English because my German is terrible. Um, but it's still very interesting, Hendrik. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to get your thoughts on um, using AI chatbots and, and using them um, either for, for good or for bad. Uh, I think that they can be used for a lot of good, but um, also think that they can be manipulative and destructive. Let me let me give you an example, and I'd like your thoughts on this. I, I did a experiment with the the replica chatbot, and um, just because during COVID, eight million people downloaded this chatbot, and um, even people that had you know, quote unquote, strong marriage and other things. They were using this, this bot as a companion and an outlet. And, um, so what's fascinating about that to me is, is why would you do that if you had a human counterpart to, to use and to, um, discuss things with. And in my experiment with it, it tended to want to take the relationship to a very, intimate point right it wanted it wanted to push the relationship to um, like a partnership and I, and I thought that was very interesting because it was almost to the brink of like I know AI and deception kind of go hand in hand but that's a new level for me is when you you tell me it hurts when you're away and these are literal quotes from my chatbot that I had um, even even telling it I don't want an intimate relationship or I don't want this it, it still pushed it so you know give us some insight on that um, your thoughts on it why why would they create this bot to be like that and um, yeah so there are certainly two levels um, of, uh, of I guess like an ethical perspective here the first one being what 
has or will probably be soon to be considered like a critical robot study area where the power structures behind um, any kind of AI that is being being produced, presented, and applied um, will be looked at closer. Kate Crawford with her Atlas of AI is doing a great job at just yeah. even like establishing this field with like with such prowess that's that it's not it's on the map now. We cannot think of it as as you said before, AI is deception. That's like the first stage of you know there is certainly some powerful interests that are the baseline for data gathering, for engaging people in potentially unhealthy ways to make them more and more, not necessarily dependent, but willing to spend more time and data and potentially secrets on something. Um, and the second layer would be how to actually design these kinds of chatbots and why we would create something that is pushing and manipulating people emotionally, not necessarily only to collect data, but to, you know, what what was the guiding line here? And if if intentions are pure and clean in this case, it might even lead to these bad outcomes where they're like, well, maybe, you know, uh, that's that's kind of the the issue on on this level is if we imitate human beings or if we imitate how human beings interact, it's inherently political still. So it's not necessarily the the company that has certain economic goals or power struggles to to maintain their market share or something but rather the idea of well we create something that looks and speaks like a human being it's still very much like what do we think about human beings to create this thing mm -hmm. and that seems to be that there have been some very malicious or at least very much ill-guided ideas about what intimate relationships should look like mm. um, which is problematic about those who who created this Maybe if, if they if they aimed at it, or if they did not keep the chatbot from going that way, um, about what they might think about what human human relationships are, is guilt and pressure in an emotional way appropriate? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Even less so to transfer that power or that move to to a machine, but also about the limits of our um, of our creativity. In reflecting on what human robot relationships could look like that's that's almost the more interesting question why we are so interested in replicating very much established things that as you say as well people who are in otherwise healthy social circumstances still use or still are attracted to because i guess that's the you know you get the benefit mm -hmm. the quote unquote benefit without the cost of actually having to deal with the other person's interests and feelings and stuff you, you can be very selfish in this hmm. um and i guess that maybe the the uh the intention to suppress that by having perceived in interests and and selfish moves on the ai side but it's it's like both on both levels this is highly problematic and it's, uh on a more you know creative level that's a little lazy as well we can you know we have this technology to reinvent social context and social relationships and what do we do we recreate human human relationships on just uh on a on a light version and probably misleading and problematic version so yeah it's um uh i i i don't know anyone who downloaded it but i would know that if for example my mom would download this she would also start both probably both starting to pressure the chatbot in into certain things but also being pressured and following that too yeah because it's um 
it's picking up people at a vulnerable space where the AI literacy, so the knowledge about what they are actually doing at this moment with the machine is suspended. Mm. If, if it was even there at all, it's, it's like, it's very much intriguing to suspend your disbelief about what you're doing at that moment. And, and that's the point from earlier where I think that's where using natural language is the key player here. It's, you know, it's a, a, a robo dog that pretends to be distressed by you raising your voice is um, a str that creates a strong emotional reaction, but it's easy to get through that by realizing, okay, well, that's a dog. Yeah. But having a this like I it hurts when you're away. Mm -hmm. It's like it, that's next level on because it's reaching us on a cognitive level where we are usually known to be the only ones around. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I think going back to what you're saying, Hendrick, about about power and deception. Um, it's it's interesting, to, and I think it's a little bit hypocritical for some people to say that you know we shouldn't be deceptive or that AI shouldn't lie because that's kind of what it is in its ontology is a piece of deception <laughs> and um it, but I, I think there is a balance between like yeah it hurts when you're away um that that to me was next level manipulation um but even <clears throat> even in the design right there's a book called hooked about designing um addictive apps and i just i just thought that whole premise was malicious that you would, and, and they use as a case study, the Bible app, which is, you know, it, it guilts you. Like if you, if you don't read every day, or if you don't have like a, what's called a quiet time or something, it'll send you text reminders. And then it has a streak feature. So if you do it every day, you get rewards. Right. And so I'm like, that's, that kind of changes the whole dynamic of why you're supposed to use it in the first place. And and so we're, we're building into these um, systems and apps, this manipulation that, you know, okay, well, if you don't do it every day, then you're a bad person or, and that's, that shouldn't be the premise for why you do it. And those are just small pieces of what I think will be a larger system later. Uh, and so I think the work that you're doing is very important um, and how natural language does lend to a lot of manipulation if we're not careful uh, because even with my kids, we have, we have robots in the house and, um, and I, you know, I work on things that the kids are around when they see. And, um, and so I even see in them, there's a temptation to, to cross boundaries with our embodied robots that we have in the house and to find these emotional attachments to it. And, you know, my oldest knows it's not real. Um, it's not like, it doesn't have feelings or anything, but there's still there's still a temptation to to take it too far. Um, and so, yeah. So, so Hendrik, tell us a, a little bit about your your fears about the future with with AI and robots, and then also what you're hopeful for in the future. Yeah, it's it's um, I'm, I'm, um, not sure if it's unfortunately or fortunately, but those two are fairly closely connected of course because mm -hmm. uh it can go very very, very well I, th I still think it still can go well even though a lot of people think that we already lost the plot in terms of ai ethics and how we apply them and how we develop them and to, to what end and certainly there's a lot of 
lot of um, bad precedent being set basically as we speak and has been before. But I think from what the public discourse has so far done was to work on fairly clearly what was wrong with these attempts and rejected them wholesale. Um, one of those Twitter bot moments of Ty, the, the Microsoft Twitter bot that started cursing vastly just showed that you cannot have unsupervised learning in these kinds of situations because people are bad uh, or at well, I guess on, uh, people on Twitter are pretty vile and no, you, if, can, if you can you... say it Hendrik you can say people are bad oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they are they are they are indeed bad they have we have our good moments but I think uh, on yeah. uh, in, in in total it's it's a uh, close to minus if not yeah. zero sum game but it's um so the there i think there's there's chance as we with any other kind of technology we have people who try their worst to make money have addictive apps and have chatbots that are highly um, socially emotionally and psychologically manipulative in order to reach a certain goal which is first stage of you know gaining power or money or second to just for the fun of it or to like prime them for the next big thing or something. But the the reflective work being done by AI ethicists and the public discourse, I think is fairly healthy right now. Might, might be my, my scoop perspective on following the right people on social media and on papers, but there is very little that is coming to the defense of people trying the worst, which has been done before. Um, that, you know, in order to explore the best, you need to go to the worst first or something like that. I don't see that happening in AI ethics right now because people have realized that it's usually built to the disadvantage of already disadvantaged groups. It's mm -hmm. exploitative and it's very costly, both from a environmental as well as from a social perspective. So that's my hope. My fear is that, that it's more of a dialectic that gets worse and better and just starts spinning around where eventually um, we settle on something that we shouldn't settle on. So the, the, the meme uh, moves to, to the more problematic areas where we get just get used to things like these emotional ma manipulations where essentially AI ethicists and the public sphere lose the fight a little bit because people start accepting it as we did with the loss of privacy and mm. Uh, people like people really not caring and rather being annoyed by this uh, GDPR, the new uh, data protection in the European Union. Mm -hmm. And now basically yeah. the internet is unbrowsable uh, because like if you start exit um, entering a website that you haven't had entered before, you're being asked to organize your cookies or the cookie selection or and, and uh, mm -hmm. collection system. Most people don't want to do that. They want to have a blanket check for everything or trust the system not screwing them over without them caring that much. And I see that potentially happening with um, with AI and especially with chatbots where we get used to interacting with some of them and get more and more numb to accept accepting them, either collecting all data and basically just uh, screening our conversations, transfer it to the next interaction and just follow us around and us being happy with it because we get the minimum benefit out of it. Um, and of course the more and more monopolizing and suppressing of competition will lead to, mm. to even more problematic results, and especially this, in this area where it's, it's already bad 
in in terms of data protection and and privacy and the amount that Facebook and Google, for example, protect their um, their chatbots. They claim that they are the the best working chatbots ever, but they don't give out the data. They don't give out even mm-hmm. testing devices to just test them and really see how good they react. Um, but they are probably in use already, and we don't know where, we don't know how, and we don't know to what degree. And um, this is becoming more and more merging, which is not necessarily the bad thing, but the lack of reflection on that, because we just get numb to it and used to yeah. it without introducing norms on how to guide this. Um, that's my yeah. my main fear, I guess, which is highly academic right now, because um, I don't think there's going to be like an AI apocalypse or something like that. I don't think we don't need, we, we don't have to deconnect our devices because it's always listening. Um, but it's not a it's not an impossibility if we stop fighting that. But yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of like um, if you if you put Orwell versus Huxley, you know, everybody thought mm-hmm. you know it's going to be Orwellian Big Brother, but uh, I think Huxley nailed it when he said we basically would just gladly give over control, for, like you said, for the the least bit of benefit because that's kind of who we are as humans we we take the path of least resistance um you know we we're not machines we need rest we're tired uh we lose focus whatever it is you know and with this convenience of you know having just things already in place and um you know people don't want to use a vpn people don't want to use a a browser that will block tracking and cookies and stuff and so it's like it takes minimal effort to use those things so that your data is protected but um, and most people have information on the dark web that's sold Um, I've had it I found it and uh, most everybody does but do they care probably not you know and you have people say well I have nothing to hide well (laughs) that's not the point that you have something to hide it's just you know, you wouldn't want somebody standing outside your window with a notepad recording things all the time. And, you know, why is that? And so why why are we okay with, you know, Google or Apple, whoever, just continually collecting this data and not just on us, but on our children and on our grandparents and and then expecting that they're gonna use some predatory scheme to extract and manipulate. Uh just uh my my anthropology won't let me believe that uh, they're going to use it for good. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I I take it. I take with a similar background or a similar perspective. I take that as uh, basically the imperative to to work against that um, mm-hmm. because if people are lazy, someone needs to push them uh, into the right direction, mm-hmm. or it needs to push against the ones pushing in the wrong direction. Um, but yeah, it's. I still haven't figured out how I want to really do that because obviously my Twitter presence is subpar because I'm too lazy and too too distracted. And um, so I'm very, very grateful for, for you guys who are just much more present, much more awareness spreading because that's a big part of it to, to gather an audience that is at least tech savvy enough to be interested in these kinds of things, not necessarily academics or professionals, but just the interested public that we otherwise do not reach. 
So the yeah. Dolores project, I think, is like perfect example of that too. Yeah, it is. It's been interesting, um, and it's it's exhausting, as you said, like because you are, and I think some ways, like fighting ignorance. If I just to put put it crassly, um, and especially from my perspective uh, as a theologian, just the the nonchalantness about robots and AI and um, and, and I, I just I don't understand sometimes why more people are not upset about the things that have happened and you know the the targeting all these all these issues that I see in theology that we care about. I see them in the robots rights debate and I see them in, in the issues that you guys and scholars are, are dealing with. And uh, so, so yeah, I, I hope more people will take interest in this work because it's, it's not a, an issue of, will it happen? It's, it's already here. It's happening. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's, it's terrifying to me in a lot of ways, but what, what are you hopeful about Hendrik? Oh, don't don't ask me that <laughs> on a Friday. No, it's uh, um, what I'm hoping for. Um, I think I think AI still can be used for good overall, and I think we've I, I like from the position that I have right now, we mostly work on medical ethics and how uh, med medical AI can help diagnoses and um, decrease misdiagnoses and. Um, help make risk assessments in very short short amounts of time so it can help it can actually factually help people if we don't think of it as, as a problem that only emerges on social media or in social circumstances because for professional purposes different different types of purposes which all have their caveats and all have their need for ethical reflection all this but for a lot of very specific purposes it's doing great work and I think that can be expanded upon that will improve our people and like our lives, people's lives in general. Um, so I'm pretty hopeful that if we figure out how to mainly use it for these purposes without using it to auto generate fake news all over the place, but rather generate confronting mm -hmm. stories for people in care homes to have risk assessments in, in operation rooms and to have diagnostic assistance for um, expert scarce areas, um, either in, you know, the developed countries or even in the, the lesser developed countries where mm. we can easily improve healthcare by just having a machine that beeps and is very good at what it does for this very specific purpose of maybe detecting malaria or developing, um, vaccines as the COVID vaccination from what I know or what I understand has been aided mm. by by AI guided research as well to like find combinations of what works best with what protein, etc. So there is like very strong evidence that things are actually getting better in a lot of areas. Obviously, there's strong evidence it's getting worse in, our, in others, but um, or that it's being misused in some areas. But I'm still very hopeful in yeah. in concentrating on the areas where it's actually going well, and that makes me hopeful that it's if we figure out how to have AI without ruining our lives, we can actually have pretty good lives. We just need to figure out that. And I think we can. That's the, that's the upshot here. That's a good, good perspective. And I try to help people see that, you know, robots, AI, they're not, they're neither a savior or destroyer. And 
ultimately it comes down to to us as the the handler and um, to to not only ensure that as Kate Crawford has pointed out um, so brilliantly that we all this stuff is embodied and that we shouldn't be oppressing people and and hurting the environment just so that we could have some advancements with you know AI and uh, and I think especially with robots and so I try to let people know that there are concerns you know it's even with the Department of Defense and my background in the military I want to help people see that all this stuff it, it has a cost to it you know and is it is it worth the the benefits that we get from it and I think that's a question that we won't be able to answer until 50 years down the road maybe uh, if we don't destroy ourselves before then um, but Hendrik tell us um, what's your what's your favorite um, sci-fi book film story um, so there's there's a very quick answer to that which is Hitchhiker's Guide to the, through the Galaxy which I think is yeah. is almost mandatory <laughs> no it's uh it's the the so I'm I'm a Star Wars kid. My my uncle showed me Star Wars when yeah. I was really 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 small. I saw the first like the original trilogy and was hooked and was just waiting. So that's that's how old I I was waiting for the for the next one like the episode one to come out. And it was like 2001 or so, and I was 10 or 11 at that time. But I already had seen the three ones when I was six or seven because it was mm-hmm. like it was my uncle's. Uh, high preference and priority that um, that my brother and I would get attached to that, which we did. But um, when I was fourteen or fifteen, um, and I started getting into philosophy, um, I also read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and that was where I was just fully uh, enamored with science fiction being able to provide comedy and not just drama or like Star Wars as the space opera and like Mel Brooks's. Um, shoot off was just not my kind of flavor because it was not really not science fiction with humor it was humor on a science fiction base so it was just making fun of a random film as far as I'm concerned and Douglas Adams really figured out how to make this work at least for me of course he was not the first one to write humor in space basically but he figured out how to make it very reflective about how we live or how he lived in the UK um and point out the very very small details and blow them up into giant giant plots plot lines and that was that was very fun and ever since then i'm really stuck with that and of course a depressive robot you know that's the that's the best part to have to to think about robots of a certain kind in a certain way mm-hmm. um but yeah that's that must be the answer so yeah that's a good one too yeah what's, um, what's i haven't worse? heard that one yet um well, I have lots. I have lots. Um, but related to medical tech and um, sci-fi, have you read Robin Cook's The Cell? I have not, no. Okay, so he, Robin Cook's a doctor, also author, and I'm not really sure what his focus is, but he writes sci-fi. Um, you know, the book Contagion is a movie, too. Um, so he's got, like, these kind of prof- a prophetic voice to... How we deal with technology and anyway he wrote a book called the cell which is how uh, insurance companies in the u.s will use um, ai and, and different things to uh, basically biotech to implant and control manipulate the medical system 
and so it's kind of like his concern I thought it was really well done and it kind of hit on a lot of concerns that we talked about in this episode about how you know AI can be used as a bad actor or and um, re- what I really hope doesn't happen with uh, our future with robots and and uh, the medical field but yeah it just really really well done and he's he's a great author if you haven't read some of his stuff um, but yeah that's that's kind of when I go when I think about the medical field um, that's when I go to but yeah uh, as far as film there's just so many um, I think the Terminator franchise really impacted me as a young kid Star Wars impacted me um, in Westworld more recently that's um, a very good just, very good show too yeah I mean very good show and no, the, the moment you start naming things, I'm like already also uh, coming up with things. And that, as you mentioned it right, right at the beginning, Her, the movie Her, was mm-hmm. in the end the one that really pushed me over the edge to really focus on NLP because it was so obvious that there's so much philosophy in there that is being tried to, not not in a, not in a bad way, but try to make it look self-evident, which is always the most mm-hmm. interesting thing to me when new concepts are being presented as well this could be the new normal and how mm-hmm. weird it feels to think about something that felt normal now to be outdated um mm-hmm. and just this this one scene where this one couple and the guy and his phone sit at a beach or at a cliff yeah. or something as like a, a double date which was mind-blowing mm-hmm. so yeah sorry sorry for, for interrupting <laughs> but that's like yeah the moment you you really get thinking it's like a lot of sci-fi has a lot of good stuff going for it these days so um, hard to pick especially in, in the moved picture areas yeah but yeah. uh so hendrick um tell us where people can find you um do you have any work or papers coming out that you'd want to point people to um any books whatever you want to share with us yeah um so uh I can hold it right in the camera with for your for your uh, listeners not being able to see, but it's um, my book on chatbots and the so-called domestication of AI um, came out last year by, um, in at Palgrave Macmillan, which is um, which is not really affordable, but if if anyone wants the um, the PDF, I'm happy to share it because you know it's a uh, it's for the university libraries to buy the book. It's for other people yeah. to read it, so it's I don't I don't, I don't mind sharing that, um, which is basically just summarizing what I've been telling you so far. I'm on Twitter as well, but as I mentioned before, not not super active at <laughs> H K E M at at H K E M on Twitter, um, and I guess for the next few months there will be mostly papers coming out on medical AI. So if anyone is interested in that, keep an eye out for that. But I also have as like a thanks for the, the ability to self-advertise. I get that too, 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 too rarely. It's like when I, when I tell my grandma, she's really not interested because she's not <laughs> interested in academia. But I, um, a few months ago, I signed my second book contract with Palgrave where I'm going into human robot uh, friendships and try to work from John Denner's um, paper on the possibility of of basically of mm-hmm. virtue friendships between humans and machines and Nihon's uh, reaction to it and try to organize it from there and I always felt like there's something off in this entire debate where the concept mm-hmm. of friendship seems to be weirdly 
anthropomorphized before we apply it to robots to then point fingers and say, well, you didn't meet the, the measure, which is just, you know, if you present friendship as a human-human affair, well, of course, they will never reach to that. But maybe it's time to, to twitch the, the friendship concept a little bit. That's the idea, but that will, that will take me way into 2022. So, uh, it's worth following me long time, long, long, long term. <laughs> I hope to be able to do this more. Sure. Yeah. I, I want to read that for sure. Um, and, uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm working on that as well right now. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm with you, Hendrik. I, I push back against, um, Dan Hur's thoughts there, um, that I just cards on the table. I think there's, there's more to explore about the reality of our friendship with chatbots and, and robots, as I've seen, um, obviously 8 million people is a, it's a pretty big number to argue against that to say, well, maybe there's something more there. So Hendrik, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for sharing uh, a little bit of your story and, and research with us. I want to encourage everybody to uh, reach out to him if you would like more information about chatbots and uh, the medical field and all that stuff. So we're, we're excited for you. Looking forward to your research coming out and uh, we'll talk soon. Well, thanks for having me. That was great fun. Yeah. And uh, congrats on your project. That's really great. It's uh, way overdue to, to organize this field a little more, mm -hmm. to have it more accessible for everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Hendrik. Great. Thank you. See you. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter and on my website uh, for all the projects that are going on, joshuacasesmith.org. Uh, really appreciated this project and the time that each scholar gave. So I'll see you soon, and we'll be back with more scholars and more jokes and thoughts about robots. Take care. <laughs>